I have to tell you that my boys uh, love Legos. Every birthday, every Christmas, you can count on it. Legos are going to be a part of it. And as uh, my oldest, Caleb, as he's gotten older, uh, the Lego sets get more and more complex. Instead of 50 pieces, there's 500 pieces. And uh, he needs less and less of my help these days. Uh, this past Christmas, he was putting together a Star Wars uh, Lego set. And for like 90 minutes, the entire house was just quiet. Like the boys were doing their thing, building their Legos, and uh, you can imagine the, the sheer and utter disappointment when someone who shall remain nameless bumped the table and the uh, Lego ship shattered into 500 pieces. I've never seen a Lego set destroyed like that. And, and it's hard to explain, but, but as it was happening, Caleb and I locked eyes with each other. We were both like, oh, no. It's like, I don't know how to explain it. It was like time stopped, slow motion. Now, Tara, she, uh, she, she felt bad, and so she was like, it's okay, we'll, we'll, we'll put it back together. And I'm like, no, lesson learned, you're on your own, buddy. But Caleb's not alone, is he? There, there are times in all of our lives where we work really, really hard on something, and then in a moment it all falls apart. For you, maybe it happened with a job where you put in the time, you put in the effort, but you got passed over for the promotion. Maybe it happened in a financial situation. Uh, when I was in college, one of my friends got married in Florida, and the day before the wedding, all of the groomsmen got together, and uh, they went out and rode jet skis on the Gulf of Mexico. Well, it was a bunch of college guys doing college things, and so they were being reckless and uh, going fast, and uh, the groom, Josh, uh, his brother was uh, riding next to him on, on a jet ski. And so his brother looked to his left, and he thought Josh was on his left side. So when Josh wasn't on his left side, he just yanked the jet ski to the right, which is exactly where Josh was. Right was wrong because he went directly into Josh's leg, shattering it. Josh tumbled into the water, and his friends quickly came by, picked him up, rowed him back to shore, and got him to a hospital as quickly as possible. In that moment, everything changed. Everything that his bride had planned for months went right out the window. The groomsmen and the bridesmaids were sent home. The wedding venue was canceled. The catering was canceled. The European honeymoon was canceled. Instead, full of pain medication, wearing a luxurious hospital gown, Josh and Ashley were married in his hospital room. Now, it may not have been your wedding, but my guess is you've had moments in your life where you put in the work. Maybe you made the right investments at the right time, but then everything just falls apart. Like if you were trying to sell a house in 2008, you probably remember that the housing market flipped overnight. Some people, especially in California, lost 50% of their home value in a single day. It was just like the bottom fell out. And there's nobody in this room, there's no one who's joining us online who's above that feeling. We live in a world where there are two things that have a tendency to happen to us very often. One of them is the storms of life. These are things that you didn't choose and they just happen because maybe you're at the wrong place at the wrong time. They happen because we live in a fallen world. Storms come. There's also sin, either sin in our lives or sin in someone else's lives that cause situations where, where it feels like some of the things that we work so hard for just vanish before our eyes. 
uh, we've been walking through a series called Looking Up, studying the Psalms of Ascent. Today, we're looking at a psalm written by Solomon, an extremely wise man. He asked God for wisdom, and God granted his request. And what Solomon's going to teach us today is why we feel the way we do when things like that happen, when the storms come. And then he's going to teach us what we can do with what we know and how we can make the best of it. So if you have your Bibles, Psalm 127 is where we'll be today. Psalm 127. And would you please stand for the reading of God's Word? Psalm 27, beginning in verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. In vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat, for he grants sleep to those he loves. Children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. In this psalm, Solomon is teaching us that when it comes to our work, there is a thin line between fruitful and futile. You and I, as human beings, we walk this thin line every single day. Here, he uses the word vain. In Hebrew, it means emptiness or nothingness. He goes to say there is a way to work that ends up empty. And my guess is you felt this at some point, at some level. There's a couple ways I've seen this play out in my own life. One is the way we work doesn't last. It's like building a sandcastle at the beach and the waves come and just sort of wipe it out. It might be that financial portfolio. It could have been a marriage for you where, where you put in the effort, you put in the work and the other person didn't and, and, and the waves just came and knocked it over. The way we work sometimes doesn't last. It's vain, it's vanity. The other thing that happens is sometimes our work doesn't deliver. You ever got that promotion? You got the raise and you thought, okay, now I'm going to be financially stable. What happens when we get raises? Somehow it just evaporates into thin air, doesn't it? Feels like we're back to square one. We got the new house, we got the new job, we, we got the new car, and we drove the car off the lot and that feeling was there for, for a little bit. For a few days, but, but then after a week or so, it was just a car. The things that we work for sometimes just come up empty. They don't deliver on what, they, on what we hope they will. We live under the illusion of the American dream. The American dream essentially says that, that if we work hard enough and we do enough, then eventually we'll make it, we'll succeed. And I see that story play out all the time in the lives of people around me, and I tend to think that it generally works but it doesn't work every time, does it? We think the equation is if I put in enough work and if I work hard enough, then I will produce and I will make it. It's always up and to the right. More work equals more production. But that's just simply not true. And if anyone could talk about the way that doesn't work, it would be Solomon. Solomon was a great builder. If you read through the Old Testament, you'll see that he spent 13 years having people build his house for him. He didn't just plant a garden in his backyard, he planted forests. 
He spent seven years building the temple of God. He was a builder, and he tried to build his life to be great too. He operated under this principle. If I work hard enough, and if I do enough, if I have enough money, then I'll be prosperous, then I'll be successful, then I will be satisfied. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, in this moment of brutal honesty, he says in Ecclesiastes 2 verse 11, Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. You get this picture of, I, I thought I was getting there. I thought I was going to capture it. I thought I was going to make it. And right when I got there, right when I thought that my work would have meaning and goodness and value, it just fell apart. Nothing was gained under the sun. Psalm 127 would say the same thing. We'll say it in a negative way because that's how Solomon says it in the psalm and so much of Ecclesiastes. We can work as hard as we want and we can do as much as we can and if God doesn't show up and if God doesn't invade it, then it's simply emptiness. Let's close in prayer. No, no, no. Because there's an opposite side of this coin too, right? That's what this psalm is about. That's essentially what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Solomon gets to the end of that book and he gets to the end of this psalm and he goes, listen, if we only work in our own might, in our own strength and trying to do our own thing, yeah, it is empty and meaningless. But if we recognize that God is at work in the midst of our labor and that he is building something beautiful and something significant, he can infuse every moment of every day with his goodness and meaning and purpose. So here's how we'll say it today. An awareness of God's activity creates capacity for abundant living. So you, you say this, you fill in however you, you make a living, okay? Whatever your work is, an awareness of God's activity creates capacity for an abundant farming, an abundant nursing, abundant teaching, abundant parenting, you fill it in. If you have an awareness of God as you do it, then there is capacity for beauty and meaning and goodness in the midst of it. I heard a story of Yogi Berra, the great catcher for the New York Yankees. The Yankees were in a tie game with another team. The guy steps into the batter's box and with the end of his bat, he draws a cross in the batter's box. Yogi Berra, crouching from his catching position, he reaches forward and he brushes the cross away. He looks at the batter and says, let's just let God watch this one. Now, I think that many of us feel the same way about our work. We say, God, you can observe, and, and God, you can give some input, but, but really, I feel like I'm, I'm on my own here. But friends, listen, there is no abundant life apart from the author of life. Many of us, when it comes to our work, our, our vocation, our jobs, that, that's what Solomon's talking about here. We have this uneasiness, this, this unsettledness deep within our soul, and I think it's because we've said to God, God, you can watch, and God, you can, you can look on, but, but really, I've got it from here. Thank you very much. To quote the great fourth century theologian, St. Augustine, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. That's Solomon's conclusion about the way we work. Faith in God creates the capacity for a life that flourishes. Whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our jobs, whether it's in our relationships, whether it's in our churches, whether it's in our neighborhood, 
It's this faith in God, recognizing that as I work, God brings meaning, and as I bring what God's called me to do, God does what only he can do. And so I want to dive a little deeper into what Solomon says in this passage. Psalm 127, verse 1. Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. So I think sometimes we read this and we think, well, that means I don't have to work. Praise the Lord. That's not what he's saying at all. He's saying that as you work, have an awareness that God works too. Do you know that all throughout Scripture you're called to work? Work is a condition of humanity before sin ever enters the world. It's not a condition of the fall. We don't work because of sin. In fact, if you go back and you read the beautiful narrative of Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are called to work in the garden before sin enters the world. And so we work now, and we will work for all eternity in God's kingdom. So if you don't like to work, you may not like heaven. Solomon, he's not saying that we can just sit back and allow God to do it. What he's saying is that unless God shows up, your work is futile. But you are called to work. Now, I think there are two ways that the enemy twists this good gift of God that, that we call work. One of them is through what the King James Version calls sloth, what most English translations call laziness where we figure that if, if we get something handed to us, then, then we don't have to work for it. But here's what Paul says to the church at Thessalonica in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. For even when we were with you, we gave this rule to you. The one who is unwilling to eat, who, excuse me, the one who is unwilling to work, shall not eat. So Solomon is not saying, hey, just sit back and take it easy. That, that's one of the ways that that enemy twists the gift of work. The second way is by causing us to put too much weight on our work. We live in a society where if somebody, if somebody tells you about themselves, almost the very first thing they're going to tell you is what they do. It's a sort of a way of displaying, I find my identity and I find my worth in my work. It's who I am. The very core of my being is found in what I produce. It's no wonder that work-related stress is such an epidemic in our day. We put all of this self-reliance on, I've got to make it happen. Uh, there was a popular pastor whose church was growing exponentially. He had this goal that his church would reach 100,000 people. But recently, he had a moral failure. And I want you to listen in his, to his own words as he reflects on that. What we've seen the Lord do over the last 16 years has been a modern-day miracle. However, in my obsession to do everything possible to reach 100,000 people and beyond, it's come at a personal cost to my own life and created a strain on my marriage. Now, we so quickly think, hey, if somebody's doing the work of the Lord, they're doing a good thing, but, but here's what he's lost sight of. He lost sight that the way we work with God is in partnership, not in isolation. And so the big idea that I want you to get from this is that you and I are called by God to commit to effort, but to trust God for the outcomes. We give our best, we work hard, but we trust that God will bring the growth. You see, friends, productivity is found in partnership. Unless God shows up, the builder builds in vain. 
Paul would say the same thing to the church in Corinth. When people were debating over who they would follow, would they follow Paul, would they follow Apollos? He says in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, What, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. He is the one who does the producing. Now sure, Paul and Apollos, they worked hard, and if you read through Paul's letters, he'll tell you how hard he works. But he works hard with the recognition that God, we are in this together, and I am bringing my best to the table. But God, I am trusting that you are the one who will bring the growth. You're the one who brings the meaning. I work, but you bring the meaning. You create something beautiful out of the work of my hands. I was reminded of this a couple years ago when Tara planted some tomatoes in our backyard. Now, she wasn't exactly uh, ambitious about this. This was just a small area uh, by, by the back of our fence. And she thought it'd be cool to give the kids an experience. And so each day, they'd go in the back and they'd see if the tomatoes were progressing at all. And I wish I had a picture of this. Because we planted like regular full-size tomatoes. But when those things came to harvest, I mean, they were smaller than cherry tomatoes. I mean, it was, it was so disappointing. And I can't help but think that life sometimes feels that way, doesn't it? Hey, God, we put in the work. God, we watered. God, we, we did our part, and, and I was passed over for the promotion. God, my portfolio didn't perform the way that I wanted it to. God, the relationship just didn't pan out the, the way that I wanted to, even though I put in all the work. Have you ever stopped to think about how little of your life you're actually in control of? We live under the illusion that if we put in the work, then it's gonna turn out good. But all it takes is one phone call from a doctor to crush that mentality, doesn't it? You can eat all the kale and all the broccoli you want to, but at the end, so much of your life is in the hands of a sovereign creator. We wanna control it, don't we? We think if I work harder, I'll produce more, and our goal is to control every aspect of our life. And so we hear a message like this and initially it kind of rubs against us. But I want to say to you that this should be great news for you today. Here's why. It's the reality that we live in. Solomon wants to, to pull the curtains back a little bit and, and say that this is true. This is real. This is the world that we live in. We can give our best, but we have to trust God to bring the growth. It's true in parenting, it's true in marriage, it's true in our work. Solomon goes on to say, unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. First he talks about provision, now he talks about protection. He goes that the best army in the world is not a fail-safe against getting attacked. The best politicians in the world are not a guarantee that your nation will be ultimately safe. Now, I'm all about having a good military. I'm all about electing great politicians. But friends, as followers of Jesus, our hope is not in our military. Our hope is not in who we elect. Our hope is in the God who stands sovereign above it all. He is our hope. It's in his hands. And that, that is what Solomon reminds us. 
Paul continues in that great passage in 1 Corinthians. He draws out something that I think Solomon would say to us as well. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one you already laid, which is Jesus Christ. So friends, you give the effort. God controls the outcomes. But will you, as you do that, recognize that the fruitfulness of your life is determined by the foundation of your life? If we build on a faulty foundation, we're never gonna get production from, from what we hope for. We won't get the production that, that we long for. We won't get the production that we pray for. I saw this news article about the Millennium Tower in San Francisco. It was built in 2009, 58 stories tall. Over the last few years, they noticed that the windows were a little harder to open, that the doors weren't uh, working properly. People like Joe Montana, who bought $10 million luxury condos in this high-rise, are now living in a building that has sunk 16 inches and has tilted two inches. But if you lived on the 58th floor, two inches makes a difference, doesn't it? So often, the work we do in life, whether it's in a vocation, whether it's in a relationship, we give it our all so often we're building on the wrong foundation. Unless the foundation of our lives is built on the one true God, our lives will eventually encounter a storm and start to tilt. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 7. And his teaching is the storms in life will come. It's not a matter of if, it's when. And what will be revealed in the storms of life is what foundation you've built on. So I want to give you two quick pieces of encouragement today. One, build on the foundation of his wisdom. I think a lot of times we expect God's blessing without our willingness to be obedient. We want his blessing in our marriage, but we don't want to live our marriage according to his word. We want his blessing on relationships, but we won't follow his instructions. We want his blessing on our finances, but but we won't say, uh, God, I will follow you. Instead, we say, God, I'm going to operate my finances on my own. I can't expect God's blessing if I'm not willing to be obedient to his wisdom. It's like building on sand. You can build a great structure, but eventually what you're building on will be revealed. Only a foundation built on Jesus will be fruitful. The second thing, not only are we enlightened by his wisdom, but we are empowered by his spirit. Paul says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Don't you just love that picture of Paul working his hands to the bone, empowered by the Spirit of God? What's it look like to be empowered by God's Spirit? Here's the way it works for me. It's recognizing the Father's love that the Spirit pours into my heart. If I don't have that, then I'm working on willpower alone, and that'll only get me so far. But friends, I'll tell you, when I hear God speak his goodness and his love over me, calling me his child, I could go on forever. Secondly, there's a strength in being reminded of my salvation and the joy that's found in that. In fact, Scripture explicitly states that the joy of the Lord is my strength. So our hearts are stirred by the love of the Father. Our, our, our spirit is, is, uh, is encouraged by the testimony of the Holy Spirit, and our lives are permeated with the joy of the gospel that declares he is our chief cornerstone. 
He is the one that we build on, and he is the one who holds it all together. So Solomon writes, unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor, labor in vain. Now that can sound sort of poetic, and it can be hard for us to really grasp our hearts and minds around that. It's hard for us to ask, God, am I doing that? Am, am I building in vain? Is, is this life in vain? How do we know the answer to that question? Here's how you can know. Verse two, in vain you rise early and stay up late, toiling for food to eat. That is the litmus test for, for God. Am I trusting that you're doing your part and, and that I'm called to do mine? Have I gotten roles mixed up? Because when I get the roles mixed up, I often start to get anxious. I start to feel like I'm in more control than what I'm actually in control of. I start to feel like I've got to make things happen. And, and what I've forgotten is that God is present and active in every moment of every day. And so the question that we wrestle with is anxious toil, anxious working, anxious farming. And what Solomon would ask is, has your anxious farming ever produced more of a crop? Has anyone ever thought, I'm so glad that I worried about those crops growing because the fact that I worried meant that they grew more? No one's ever said that. Solomon is inviting us to trust that, that while we do our work, God does his. I am no more, more clean, keenly aware of that than when I'm standing right here right now. I work, I study, I pray, I plan, but I am absolutely at the mercy of God working in your life. If something happens, it's him. It's not me, but so often I feel like it has to be me. When I believe and when you believe that God is at work, we can actually cease from our labor. That's built into what it means to be human. If you go back and you read Genesis one and two, Adam and Eve wake up in this paradise garden on day six of God's creative act. And then on day seven, God says, hey, let's stop and everybody rests and everybody just pause. I've often read that and I've wondered, what are Adam and Eve tired from? Like they just woke up naked in a garden. But built into the rhythm of what it means to be human is this recognition that A, when we cease from our work, God continues his. And B, Adam and Eve are called to, to stop and look around and take in the beauty around them and recognize that we did absolutely nothing to create this. God, you're working, God, you're moving. The anxious human soul is healed when we step into that rhythm of work and rest and Sabbath, recognizing that even when we stop, God works, and that God is the creative master behind everything that's around us. Solomon will say toiling for food to eat is one of the ways that we recognize that, that we're out of joint, that we're not trusting God to do his part. We think that we have to do his part and our part, but verse two says that God grants sleep to those he loves. He gives them rest. He invites them to take his yoke upon them because he is gentle and humble in heart. I love this word, he gives sleep to those he loves. He gives them rest. 
when you and I recognize that embracing rest is a byproduct of receiving love. When you and I recognize that embracing rest is a byproduct of receiving love, we position our souls to be made whole by a God who says, I'm at work even when you stop. That might be a word here for some of you today. You might have come in under the bondage of religion that says you've got to keep doing it, that you've got to do enough, that you've got to work your way up to God. And what God would say to you today is allow my announcement over you to quiet the anxiety within you. I love you, and I am good, and even when you stop, I keep working. He actually closes the psalm with what many would say is the main point. I actually think it's an illustration of what Solomon has already taught. It's a picture for us to see how when we trust that God is at work, it creates space for an abundant life. He uses an illustration that we see all around us, beginning in verse 3. Children are a heritage or a blessing from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be put to shame when they contend with their opponents in court. What Solomon is teaching is that, yes, children at this time were a legacy, and they still are. They were a protection. They were a workforce. If you had a lot of kids, then you had people who could work in the field. They were a picture of God's goodness and of his abundant blessing. But, but as a parent, when it comes to raising kids, you know that you're called to put in the effort, but you have to trust God with the outcome. As much as we would love to control how their lives go, so much of it is in the hands of our Father, is it not? Like arrows in the hands of a warrior. In that day and time, an archer was not exactly a precise shooter. They just sort of launched the arrows. And yeah, that's sort of what raising kids is like, right? With kids, the foundation you lay will often determine the fruit that their lives bear. When you create a space where they are loved and cared for, they are able to rest without having to prove that they're your kids. They can simply crawl in under the gracious covering that your love provides for them. In a very real way, kids draw out the reality that some of the greatest blessings in our life are the work of God's hands and God's grace, not the work of our labor. That is the picture that Solomon is painting. Eugene Peterson, sort of tongue-in-cheek, comically says, the entire miracle of procreation and reproduction requires our participation, but hardly in the form of what we would call work. Think about it. If you have kids, they are a great example of, yeah, some of the best things in my life did not come because I worked really hard and earned them. If we were able to step back, some of the best things in our life are simply the gift of grace. If you're married, it might be a spouse. Listen, I thank God every day that he blinded Tara long enough that he allowed me to swoop in. I don't, I don't know what it is for you, but, but I would encourage you sometime this week to just pause, to stop, and, and to pray to God, God, what are some of the greatest things I have in my life? And my guess is that some of the greatest things in your life are grace given from the hand of God, not from the hard striving and toil of your hands. That is Solomon's point. Recognize that. Rest in that. 
Do your part, absolutely. But invite God to do his. Friends, if you can't think of anything else, if you are a follower of Jesus, I wanna say as clearly as I can to you today that your salvation of being in Christ is not something that you earned. It's not something that you worked hard enough for. It's not something that you produced. It flows from the hand of your generous father who when Jesus walked to the cross carried all of your sin. He did the work that you could never do to invite you to a life that you did not earn. Your salvation is a byproduct of your father's grace and goodness, not the product or the work of your hands. Let us never forget that. Let's pray together. God, we sang it earlier, you were good. You were so, so good. And God, I pray that we would not build in vain, but the God, that we would trust you, that we would give it to you, that we would do our part, but we would invite you to do yours. Help us not to, to live in competition with you. God, forgive us if we ever pit ourselves against you. God, I pray that we would come alongside you, that we would be a part of the building that, that you're a part of, that we'd be part of the kingdom that, that, that you're advancing, the kingdom that you're building, and that we would understand without a shadow of a doubt that, God, you are the one who brings the growth. That doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility. We do have a responsibility, but it, the outcomes belong to you. God, I pray that all of us would build our lives on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And if there's anybody here today who've been building on the wrong foundation, if there's anybody here who's been building their life on the foundation of their marriage or the foundation uh, of their work, the foundation of their talents, God, I pray that, that, that today would be the day that they just say, I wanna build my foundation on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. I wanna put my faith, I wanna put my trust in Jesus and I'm, I'm asking for forgiveness. I'm asking him to be the savior of my life. If there's anybody who needs to do that, God, I pray today would be that day. That there wouldn't be a, a person who leaves here today without having their life built on the foundation of Jesus Christ. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.